0: We talked on last week's program about uh, some upcoming matters evolving the California Aggie, an institution here at UC Davis, which is, I think, something like 100 years old. It's in a bit of financial trouble, as so many institutions are in the in the present day and age. And there'll be a vote coming up that may decide a bit about the Aggie's future. Rejoining us to talk about that issue is Elizabeth Orpina. She's the editor-in-chief of the California Aggie and spoke to us last year a bit about um, Jersey Boys, a play in San Francisco. So um, it's my pleasure to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Elizabeth Orpina.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Now, um, how old is the Aggie?
1: The Aggie is in its 99th year right now.
0: That alone means it needs to be kept around <laughs> for exactly. a long time. Exactly. What is, what's actually going on here? I know that a lot of, a lot of things, uh, like in the whole UC system, there's a lot of issues of dollars and cents, and I guess the Aggie's mm-hmm. no exception to that.
1: Exactly. We've been... Um, financially independent and we're basically going toward a community supported model instead of an ad supported model um, what many other successful UC newspapers have actually done is ask for a student fee um, and that has actually kept them afloat and helped them grow and become award-winning newspapers and we've just been able to keep ourselves financially um, independent up until now and so we're basically doing what we've known we are going to have to do Um, and we're proposing a fee referendum next week for the students to vote on. And if it does not pass, we go out of print. Oh, no! Yeah.
0: So the Aggie will become like an all-internet publication?
1: Yes, and probably no one will get paid, and we do not make any money off of online ads. And we would basically go online for an entire year until a different fee referendum, which is more encompassing of a lot of other groups on campus will be proposed next winter.
0: Um, how much money are the students being asked to kick in to save the Aggie?
1: $3.10 um, every single <laughs> quarter, but with return to aid, it's technically $3.88, and return to aid is basically the money that goes back to financial aid for students um, on financial aid that would not be able to accommodate the increase in student fees. So technically $3.88, but also technically three ten. So um, the 310 would be going to the Aggie.
0: Well, given the current costs of, of an education at a UC school, it seems to me that, uh, that that's not a lot of extra money here at this point. Uh, so what are the odds? What do what the polls show that, uh, how this is trending?
1: The, the hardest part about this entire election is that no one votes. <laughs> so we have a lot of support. Uh-huh. And if you ask any random student on campus, they're going to say yes because it's just $3.10, right. and it's, that's a really cheap subscription, and we've been around for almost 100 years, and you can't have a public institution without a newspaper, um, a student newspaper especially. But um, the biggest problem is the fact that no one votes. So we need to get 20% out, and then of that we need 60% to vote yes. So basically our job is to mobilize the non-voters.
0: Right, so you, there's two obstacles to, 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 to jump over. I mean, even if you win the vote, if it's under 20%, you, you, you still will go out of business. Well, I hope that uh, people listening to this program will be motivated to uh, rally the troops and get people down there to the ballot boxes.
1: It's, oh, and it's all online, so you can vote from your home. Well,
0: that should make life considerably easier.
1: It's, it takes 30 seconds. So basically, we're all going to be mobilizing on Facebook and email and just say, hey, please, just press yes and... Vote for the Senate candidates and the presidential candidates if you wish. However, all we need you to do is vote yes on Measure 1.
0: All right. And, what, and what's the date of this vote again?
1: February 18th at 8 a.m. to February 21st 8 a.m.
0: All right. Well, I guess that means that by next week's program, we're going to know how this turns out. Maybe we can exactly. come back in and do a recap with you. Yeah. And now there's been some changes in the Aggie. It, it was always a daily paper, but uh, was it last year the year before it became a weekly? Um, it
1: became a weekly spring of last year.
0: The Aggies, I've seen. Obviously, when we come down to the radio program, we uh, usually will snag a copy, and that's that's of course how I found your excellent article about the Jersey Boys last year. Oh yeah. But uh, it's it's a thicker paper. It's more it's a more substantial piece now, being a weekly. And I guess I mm-hmm. guess it will continue to be a weekly if all goes well.
1: Uh, with the referendum passing, we would be adding one day of print. So instead of going back to a daily, um, we would just increase the day of publications, um, just so that we could actually kind of work as a real newspaper in the terms of faster deadlines, but we could also have long enough deadlines that we could still produce quality work, but also um, increasing our presence on campus by producing twice a week increases our relevance as well as um, faster news reporting.
0: Of course, I've been being the Aggie for like four decades now, <laughs> all things considered, <laughs> off and on with some interruptions in, the, in, in that period, but uh, you guys have done some really good work. Thank you. How many reporters do you have, and is there a chance you'll be able to get more with, this, uh, with the finances loosening up a little?
1: Well, we, right now we have a staff of about 80, um, and only a small percentage of us are paid. And if we're paid, it's under $2 an hour. But with the referendum passing, my goal is to have everyone on staff paid. So it would be bringing pay for those who are already paid, um, maybe around to $4 an hour, but um, it would be bringing back pay for um, photographers, graphic designers, and writers, and that's a good way to attract stronger writers, retain them, and basically create student jobs, and it's really hard to maintain an all-volunteer-based paper. So um, this fee also would help basically award people for their work and all the hours they put in for this paper.
0: Well, and I hope also that we can, uh, in the weeks go by, we can unite a couple of lower freeborn institutions, <laughs> this, this oh, radio yeah. station and, and your paper, to maybe uh, just collaborate more, there. and why not?
1: Exactly.
0: We have some people that have gone to, to greater things from the radio station. Can you cite any people, any, any Aggie alumni that have gone uh, uh, forward to, to publications across the U.S.?
1: Oh, yeah, we have um, recent alumni who work at National Geographic. We have... Um, alumni who were editors at the Sacramento Bee. Um, Our editor-in-chief last year works at Sacramento News and Review. Mm -hmm. Um, Some work for the Giants for PR. We have a lot of really strong alumni Mm -hmm. who have gone some really great places. So we have a lot of alumni support as well, but it's just really hard to kind of convey the need for alumni help as well at this exact point because we don't have an alumni association mm-hmm. and that's something i've been trying to work on but with this referendum i've gotten a little distracted but that would be my goal for next quarter
0: well elizabeth uh, uh, we certainly wish you the absolute best here in this vote coming up next week and, and, and by all means come back and let's do a recap on this and talk a little bit more about uh... about reporting and what we can do to uh... what we can do together the station and your and your paper
1: thank you so much
0: all right elizabeth mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about some other stuff. Let's talk about Barack Obama, our good-for-nothing president. Although we will grant he's a lot better than what came before him, he just seems to sleep with the switch sometimes, doesn't he? In a piece in the San Francisco Chronicle, February 10th, by Bob Agelko, it was noted that Obama is resisting using his power to ease pot laws quote from this piece, when it comes to the regulation of marijuana, President Obama has had a hard time squaring his words with his actions. Most notably, his campaign promised to defer to state medical marijuana laws, which were followed by a flurry of federal raids on state licensed dispensaries and the closures of hundreds in California. He goes on, now Obama has discussed the subject in a national television interview and it's hard to reconcile his words with the law. January 31st, when CNN's Jake Tapper brought up the president's headline-making observation during a recent New Yorker magazine interview that marijuana was no more dangerous than alcohol, Tapper asked could that mean that he would consider removing marijuana from Schedule 1 of the Controlled Substances Act, which is reserved for dangerous drugs that have no accepted medical use. Obama's reply? What is or isn't a Schedule 1 narcotic is a job for Congress. When Tapper said he thought the DEA made that decision, Obama responded, it's not something by ourselves that we start changing. No, there are laws undergirdling that determination. Tapper then asked if Obama would support such a change. The president changed the subject, saying marijuana-like alcohol was subject to abuse and that its users face long sentences that sometimes have racial disparities. The piece notes that the White House has tried to spin his comments, suggesting that Obama was really saying that It was a job best suited for Congress, which placed marijuana in Schedule 1 back in 1970, alongside heroin and LSD, and has repeatedly rejected bills to ease restrictions. But they note the straightforward meaning of his words was that he and his administration have no authority to reschedule the drug, quote, by ourselves, unquote. But notes reporter Bob Ejelko, that's not the law. They quote Marsha Cohen, UC Berkeley Hastings law professor and co-author of Pharmacy Law for California is saying you can add to the schedules by regulation. The DEA could do it. Most changes are made by the DEA. Peace notes that even DEA agent and spokesman Joseph Moses, who insisted that his agency's primary role in such proceedings were law enforcement and security, acknowledged that the executive branch, and not just Congress, has the power to reschedule a drug. The piece quotes San Francisco attorney Joseph Elford is saying, if the president wanted rescheduling, I don't think he'd have a hard time persuading the DEA to do so. Adding, he could do it if he wanted to, and he's choosing not to. Notes the piece, moving marijuana to Schedule two would allow doctors to legally prescribe it. Other Schedule II drugs include morphine, Ritalin, methamphetamine, and cocaine. And yes, marijuana is considered more dangerous, and thus should be more restricted than morphine, Ritalin, methamphetamine, and cocaine. Man, I don't know what the president's been smoking, but uh, this sure seems like the same old, same old. All right, we put off talking about the uh, arena fiasco taking place in our state capital. We avoided that on last week's show, but we should mention a little bit about it today, I think there are several new turns in this vast soap opera. One is that Sacramento Superior Court Judge Michael Kenny got disqualified last week from hearing the lawsuit filed by arena subsidy opponents. The reason? Kenny signed a petition supporting their initiative. I guess he couldn't possibly render a fair judgment on whether the um, the city people had properly or improperly tossed the ballots out, could he? But uh, lawyers for the city demanded Kenny's disqualification before a preliminary hearing in the case was about to begin. The case got reassigned to Judge Timothy Frawley and at a preliminary hearing, he set a February 21st hearing date at which he'd be expected to rule on the lawsuit, in which subsidy opponents are demanding a public vote on this issue. Frawley also ruled that the 4,000, the Political Action Committee, chaired by Mayor Kevin Johnson and bankrolled by the Kings, can intervene in the lawsuit. I like this part. The 4,000 is intervening because any delay in arena construction would, quote, harm the legal and property rights of the kings, unquote. (laughs) We can't have that. And for that matter, we really can't have an election on this because, you know, the voters may decide they don't want public funds being used to support this effort. And since when should the public have a say in how their funds are spent? Come on. And as this potential monstrosity is uh, itching its way down the road, some people are waking up in Sacramento. Some old SAC business leaders are warning the mayor and city officials that the proposed downtown arena could make it harder for people to get into this historic district and could force businesses to close. Duh! Gee, a giant mausoleum constructed in a downtown shopping area uh, causing too much traffic congestion? Hmm. God, who would have thought of that? In another Sacramento legal news, it turns out that retired Air Force Brigadier General Chuck Yeager got pulled into a Sacramento court to defend himself in a lawsuit evidently put forth by the Sacramento Homeowners Association that claims that uh, the general and his wife owes it about $28,000. Noted the plaintiffs, the lawsuit is essentially about homeowners getting something for nothing. Now, we don't pretend to be experts on homeowners associations here on this program, but we have offered the opinion in the past, and I think would reiterate it today, that people in America that, that run homeowners associations are the same sorts of people who, had they lived in, say, East Germany, would have belonged to the Stasi. That was the East German spy agency. Of course, when General Yeager made an appearance in court, uh, the beast sent Andy Frio down to talk to him. And as would be expected, Mr. Frio found <laughs> General Yeager's stories a lot more interesting than the court proceedings. To quote from Andy Ferrio, Yeager says he's seen more interesting cases, like the time he presided over the court-martial of Air Force Colonel Jack Broughton, who was charged, along with two of his pilots, with strafing a Soviet ship during the Vietnam War. Yeager recalled he was saying, hey, you shoot at me, I'll shoot back. It really got out of hand, and they wanted a court-martial, old Jack, so they put me in the head of the board, and I said, this is stupid, so we excused him. Said General Yeager's wife, Victoria, everybody was ducking for cover which the general added, somebody had to save his rear end, and we did. I would note that we are eternally grateful on this program. We did have the opportunity at one point to sit down with General Chuck Yeager. Like all of our interviews, it is available to you, dear listener, on our archives at radioparallax.com. All right, we have a few minutes left in this segment. Uh, I did want to slap the bee around a little bit for its piece several weeks back with one of these local mediums that comes by to talk to the dead for a fee. I do think I need to take a very brief uh, detour at this moment into a piece by Woody Allen from his book Without Feathers titled Examining Psychic Phenomena. Woody listed the following transcript for a communication with the dead. Marple, what do you see? Medium, I see a man with blue eyes and a pinwheel hat. Marple, that's my husband. Medium, his name is Robert. No, Richard. Marple, Quincy? Medium, Quincy, yeah, that's it. Marple, what else about him? Medium, he's bald, but usually keeps some leaves on his head so nobody will notice. Marple, yes, exactly. Medium, everybody concentrate. Marple, Quincy, are they treating you okay? Voice of Quincy, not bad, except it takes four days to get your cleaning back. And if I may segue into Woody's summary of Aristodonus, the 16th century count whose predictions continue to dazzle and perplex even the most skeptical. Typical examples, two nations will go to war but only one will win. Said what the experts feel this probably refers to the russo japanese War of 1905. An astounding feat of prognostication. Well, I've never had an experience with mediums, but I have an experience with a Ouija board. I took great delight in the Smithsonian Institution's uh, article on the Ouija board, which the week thoughtfully reprinted. To quote from it, in 1891, the first ad started appearing in papers. Ouija the wonderful Talking Borg. A Pittsburgh toy and novelty shop described a magical device that answered questions, quote, about the past, present, and future with marvelous accuracy, unquote, and promised, quote, never failing amusement and recreation for all the classes. Another ad declared it interesting and mysterious and testified as proven at the U.S. Patent Office. <laughs> Price, $1.50. Well, the article, truth in advertising is hard to come by, but the Ouija board was interesting and mysterious, and actually had been, quote, proven, unquote, to work at the patent office before its patent was allowed to proceed. Peace notes that today even psychologists believe that it may offer a link between the known and the unknown. The Peace notes that Ouija historian Robert Murch had been researching the story of the board since 1992, and when he started his research, he said no one really knew anything about its origins, which struck him as kind of odd. For such an iconic thing that strikes both fear and wonder in American culture, How can no one know where it came from? Noted the piece by Linda Rodriguez-McRobbie. The Ouija board, in fact, came straight out of the American 19th century's obsession with spiritualism, the belief that the dead are able to communicate with the living. Spiritualism had been around for years in Europe, and it hit America hard in 1848 with the sudden prominence of the Fox Sisters of upstate New York. The Foxes claimed to receive messages from spirits who rapped on the walls and answered to questions. Aided by stories about the celebrity sisters and other spiritualists, spiritualism reached millions of adherents at its peak in the second half of the 19th century. Note of the piece, Spiritualism worked for Americans because it was compatible with Christian dogma, meaning one could hold a seance on Saturday night and have no qualms about going to church the next day. It was an acceptable, even wholesome activity to contact spirits at seances through automatic writing or table-turning parties, in which participants would place their hands on a small table and watch it begin to shake and rattle while they all declared they weren't moving it. So in this milieu comes the Kennard Novelty Company, the first producers of the Ouija board. It appears they were less interested in spiritualism than in opening up Americans' wallets. In fact, the guys that came together on this, Charles Kennard of Baltimore, and Elijah Bond, an attorney, along with a colonel at Washington Bowie, a surveyor, started the Kennard Novelty Company to exclusively make and market these new talking boards. None of these men were spiritualists, but they were all keen businessmen, and they'd identified a niche product. But it's noted they didn't have the Ouija board yet. The Kennard talking board lacked a name. Contrary to popular belief, Ouija is not a combination of the French for "see," we, oui, and the German, ja. Murch says, based on his research, it was Bond's sister-in-law, Helen Peters, who was, Bond said, a strong medium, who supplied the now instantly recognizable handle. Sitting around the board, they asked the board what they should call it. <laughs> the name Ouija came through. And when they asked what it meant, the board replied, good luck. Now, the makers of this board were keen to get, the, get a patent for their product, and knowing that if they couldn't prove that the board worked, they wouldn't get one. So apparently Bond brought in the indispensable Helen Peters, the medium, and went into the patent office in Washington, D.C. when they filled out the application. There, the chief patent officer demanded a demonstration. If the board could accurately spell out his name, which is supposed to be unknown to both Bond and Peters, he'd allow the patent application to proceed. They all sat down, communed with the spirits, and the planchette faithfully spelled out the patent officer's name. It was noted that whether it was mystical spirits or the fact that Bond, as a patent attorney, may well have just known the man's name, well, that remains unclear. But it was reported on February 10th, 1891, a white-faced and visibly shaken patent officer awarded Bond a patent for his new toy or game. The piece concludes by asking, well, we all know the Ouija board does work, but how does it work? Scientists say the Ouija board is not powered by spirits or demons. They're powered by us, of course. Even when we protest that we're not moving the board, we are. The Ouija boards work on a principle known to those studying the mind for more than 160 years as the ideomotor effect. Back in 1852, physician and physiologist William Benjamin Carpenter published a report on automatic muscular movements that take place without the conscious will or volition of the individual. Almost immediately, other researchers saw applications of the ideomotor effect in the popular spiritual pastimes. In 1853, physicist Michael Faraday, intrigued by table turning, conducted a series of experiments that proved to him, although not to most spiritualists, that the table's motions were due to the idiomotor actions of the participants. And of course, this reminds me back of the time in junior high when we broke out the Ouija board before my folks were going off to bet on the horses to see if we could spiritually divine the winners of the next day's race. And I'm sad to report that the Ouija Oracle failed us across the board. Aww. In fact, as I recall, most of the horses we picked were scratched the next day. I think we're about due for a break. Let's take one. You're listening to Radio Parallax.